Man, I love these family Sundays. It's great to have families read, great to have families lead us, and it's nice to have you guys in here. If you're a kid and you're in the room, we're really happy that you're here. Happy Halloween to all of you, whether you're a young kid or an old kid or whatever. I hope that you will take the opportunity tonight to get to know your neighbors. I've, I've said before, this is like one of the best days of the year to get to know the people who live around you because they're all going to be out in their yards or they're going to be on their porches or on their sidewalks. So don't miss the opportunity to get out and uh, shine a little light and be friendly and get to know people maybe you don't see other times. It's a great opportunity for that and get some candy at the same time. So that works out pretty well. Uh, my name is Darren. I don't think I mentioned that already. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. And if you're a guest with us this morning, you're joining us in the midst of a study in Genesis, but it shouldn't be hard for you to jump right in. If you're, uh, if you're a guest, I also want to point you uh, as you leave today towards the, um, the Genesis journals that are available in the lobby. Those are free. It's just a tool we use around here to kind of keep track of the questions we've got of the text or things that God might reveal to us, things we want to study deeper, things we want to remember. Uh, those are available in the lobby if you don't have one of those already. I, or should I say foyer? I really like the pronunciation of that. But I'm just going to say lobby. Anyway, they're back there. I uh, want to make sure you've got it. But today we're, uh, we're picking up halfway through Genesis 18 in what is a, a really interesting text. So what we see here, and, and we just read it, so you kind of get the gist of it. But what we see it appears to be, I don't know, I mean, you might read this and go, this looks like Abraham is changing God's mind, right? Like God is uh, wanting to do one thing, and then Abraham brings a little bit of logic and reason to the table. He brings a little bit of mercy, and God goes, oh, no, Abraham, that's smart. Your, your way is smarter than my way. I'll do it your way, right? That, that's one way to read it. Let me caution you. That's not what's going on here, and we want to be really careful when we look at the text and go, Okay, well, if this isn't God changing his mind, if this isn't Abraham sort of persuading God there may be a better approach, what is going on here? You know, the the reason why maybe a a section like this creates a little bit of a question mark over our head, or maybe you scratch your head a little bit and kind of wonder, is because we believe in, uh, it's a big theological word, but we believe in God's omniscience which means that God knows everything. That's a big word to say something simple. It means God knows everything. So there's never a time when God needs to learn something. There's never a time when God needs to ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to uh, because God knows everything already. So anytime we see a dialogue like this or anytime we hear God talking about uh, discovering something, we know because he knows everything that something else is going on there. So here in uh, in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, let's just kind of look at it. I, I want you to understand why this exchange takes place. And I don't want you to understand why this exchange takes place in my opinion. I want you to hear in God's opinion why the exchange takes place. Does that make sense? Because he tells us his motivation for the dialogue right here at the beginning of the section. So it says in verse 16 of Genesis 18, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. If you were with us last week, we saw that there were these three visitors that came. One was the Lord, the other two were angels. And last week we talked about hospitality. We talked about generosity and sacrifice that Abraham provides this meal for them. They have come to declare some things to his wife, Sarah. Um, but, but Abraham is a gracious host. That, that hospitality and gracious hosting continues now in verse 16 when we see that he doesn't just say goodbye to them and set them on their way, but that he walks with them. As they leave, he's accompanying them, which is also indicative of his generosity and of his hospitality, that he's sticking with them even as they exit. The men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Now, verse 17, here's where we get uh, clued into what it is that God is doing in this dialogue. It says in 17, and by the way, this is an inner monologue. So now 
Moses, who writes the book of Genesis, is cluing us in to what God is saying to himself. That's pretty interesting, right? We get, we get clued into God's inner monologue here. And here's what God says to himself in verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Right. So God, in his inner monologue, says, I'm going to reveal when my oldest sons were five and seven. My sons, Jack and Hank, were five and seven. We were living at Hume Lake and I made uh, robot costumes for them when they were little guys. Right. For Halloween. I think we got. Yeah, there we go. So. This is Hank on the left. He's five. This is Jack, who's seven. These guys are 21 and 19 now. But uh, back in the day, I made this. I mean, this had like working lights and switches and the whole thing. Like, you know, we took some time. I made them cool robot costumes and whatever. The way we do Halloween at Hume Lake, because it's a small community, there's like, you know, 200 people living up there and a bunch of little houses kind of scattered around the mountains. We would go and get the big bus that we take people to high adventure. We'd load up all the kids in their costumes onto the bus. And then we kind of drive them around. Because at this time at Hume Lake, it's kind of rainy and wet, a little icy, maybe snowy even sometimes. And so we put the kids on the bus and we drive them around to all these little kind of staff housing areas. And the kids would get off the bus and then they would go around and they'd get candy at each of the doors. It's like a close approximation of trick-or-treating, right? So I make these costumes for my kids and uh, we go on the bus and we're going out trick-or-treating. And um, I had cut holes in the bottom of the box for my boy's legs. And then they had those big, you know, those big silver conduit things on them. So it wasn't super easy to to move around. And uh, we get off the bus and I'm walking with my son, Jack, up to the door of this house. And uh, one of the other parents goes, hey, Darren, you should know, I think Hank fell down. Right. So I'm kind of panic. like it's hard to walk. And I kind of panic. I leave Jack there. I turn. I go back to where they are. And sure enough, as Hank's trying to walk up to the house to trick or treat, he falls over. Um, but at that point, he can't move at all. Like he's fallen over and his legs are sticking out straight. His head's out the other side. He's got no mobility. And and knowing that he can't get himself back up. He basically just uses his own sort of body momentum to roll the box. Right. So now as I'm walking back to him, the box is going in the mud and the rain, you know, and I'm like, Hey, you're ruining that costume. I just made for you. Like you're wrecking the robot costume. Stop what you're doing. I'm like, why are you doing, let me help you. Why are you doing that? He goes, I got to get that candy. (laughs) Not going to let anything stop him. If you know, Hank, that's still what he's like. He's still like that today. Right. But it was hard for him to walk in the way of a robot, right? It was hard for him to walk in the way of somebody that he wasn't. And he got to a place where he didn't kind of know how to move forward. I, I want to suggest at the beginning of our study this morning that while we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, to put his love and his mercy and his grace and his justice and his goodness and his kindness on display, it can be hard for us sometimes to walk And maybe there are places along the way as you've studied the scripture or as you've walked with God, or maybe if you're a guest with us today, maybe even as an outsider, you've looked at God from a distance and there are some things that have tripped you up. Does that make sense? For some of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, there are times that I look at things in the Bible and I think, I don't know why God chose to do it this way instead of the way that makes sense to me. I don't know why God doesn't handle this the way I want him to. I've looked at the situation and I think I have a pretty good handle on it. And so I don't know why God doesn't just do the thing I tell him to do, right? 
No matter who you are in the room, it is complicated for us as created beings to walk in the ways of our creator because his ways are beyond us. And many times his judgments don't make sense to us. And sometimes the things he chooses to do, we don't have all the information that he has. And so what I love about this is that God in his inner monologue says, I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do. And the implication or the intention of God's heart is, I want to have a conversation about this, right? I'm going to reveal this stuff to Abraham because I want him to wrestle with my justice and my mercy. Does that make sense? God reveals things to him, which both um, confirms Abraham's status as a prophet. By the way, in Genesis 20, we'll see Abraham referred to as a prophet. That's because God has revealed future things to him. But more importantly, when God reveals what he's going to do to a created being, it's indicative of his friendship. This is an act of affection. This is an act of generosity. When God reveals the truth to us in advance, it's God being kind to us. In fact, Jesus says that point blank in John 15. In John 15, and I don't know whether Jesus was thinking about Abraham and God in Genesis 18 at the time, but listen to what Jesus says in John 15 about friendship. Jesus says uh, in John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." Jesus says, I've revealed what I'm going to do. I've revealed myself to you because I love you, because we're friends, and because I want you to walk in my ways, because I want you to abide in me and produce fruit, and that fruit, for what it's worth, is loving one another, right? I've revealed who I am because I want you to be like me. That's what Jesus says. Well, that's precisely what's happening in Genesis 18. God says to himself, I'm going to tell Abraham some things that he'll find disturbing because I want to have the conversation. Because I want to bring Abraham along. So that, that's what happens. Go back to Genesis 18. It says there in, uh, in verse 16, the men set out and God has this dialogue with himself. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now that's also kind of a problematic statement. If you're thinking it through, you're, you're like, why does God need to find anything out? Why does God say, I'm going to go down to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? And it appears what he's saying is I'm going to, I'm going to discover something. Well, again, if we know that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, then there isn't a time when God ever has to go and do discovery. There's never a time when God has to go and learn something. There's never a time when he has to go and do a little bit deeper investigation because he knows things already. So so what's happening here? Well, remember, the motivation for God is to reveal himself to Abraham in a way that Abraham then can replicate and walk in his ways in justice and mercy. So what God says here is, look, there's an outcry that's come to me. And that word outcry is used in other places in the Bible. It's indicative typically of a cry of grief or a cry of injustice or a cry for rescue and deliverance. When that word outcry is used, that's the way in which it's used. God says there are people who are crying out to me in grief and injustice and in need for rescue. And we don't know whether those are the people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who are crying out for deliverance, maybe people who are oppressed in those cities, or whether it's people in surrounding areas that are saying, God, we need you to do something about the corruption of this city. 
But either way, God says, I've heard the cries of people saying that something has to be done about this wickedness. And when he says, I've come down to see it for myself, it's not that God needs to discover something, but he's trying to make a point to Abraham. And it's this, that God doesn't do anything because people tell him to, right? That God doesn't punish or heal. He doesn't restore or reject based on the whims of man, based on popular opinion, based on common consensus, based on the popular vote, that God is not moved when a bunch of people go, hey, God, we want you to do this thing. That God, when he moves, is moved based on his own awareness. That he's moved and he acts on his own judgment, on his own discretion, on his own understanding. What he's articulating to Abraham here is not like, hey, I'm going to go on a little research trip and find out whether the people who've cried out to me are really have it as bad as they say. What he's saying is, I don't act and I don't dispense justice or punishment without being fully aware as God of the intricacies of what's going on in a way that even those who cried out don't know. It's an important point for us to get our minds around, right? I think sometimes in our society, we sort of have a sense that we know who the good guys and the bad guys are, right? We sort of get this sense that in our offices or in our schools or in our families, we know who the white hats and the black hats are. We know the good guys and the bad guys. What God is saying is nobody knows like I do, right? I do, I do all my own homework and I know what is true and what is false. I know what is right and what is wrong. There's an outcry that's come, but I know intimately whether or not this is accurate or it's just the whims of man. It's important for us to remember both that God's judgment is better than ours But number two, that God isn't moved simply by enough people sort of raising their voices collectively. That he's moved by truth. That he's moved by what's right. That he's moved by what is real. That's important for us. So God says, I'm going to go and I'm going to see it with my own eyes. Now at this point, Abraham has some questions. And maybe you do too. Maybe when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got some questions. And you're like, man, did it have to go this far? Maybe a, a few months ago when we studied the flood... Maybe there was a question mark that came up over your head and you're like, man, did, it ha- like, did he have to wipe everybody out, including all the, you know, the, like, wh- why this, right? Abraham has a question. He's, he's got a question about the morality of this. He's got a question about God's justice and his mercy. Now remember, it's not inappropriate for Abraham to ask these questions because God moved toward Abraham specifically to have this dialogue. And that's an important note for us to remember as well, that God isn't threatened by your questions. He's not scared of your doubts. He's not worried about the times when you go, hold on, I have a question. I've read something in your word and I don't understand it or it's not the way I would do it or it doesn't make sense to me. Remember too that there is a, there can be a tendency for us as human beings to want to think of God in terms of just being like us on our best day, right? We know that we have good days and bad days, that there are days where we make good choices and bad choices. And when we try to envision what God is like, we think, well, he must just be like me, but without any of my flaws, without any of my uh, indiscretions, without any of my mistakes. That isn't true. God isn't just like a really well-informed and a really good human being. He knows everything. He has all the power and all the knowledge and he loves us perfectly, right? So his justice and mercy, there are going to be times where his justice and mercy doesn't compute to us, but his justice and mercy is infallible. It's inscrutable. And he doesn't mind walking us down the path to help us understand. If there aren't places in which you're confused about how God acts, you're not paying attention to God, right? 
If there aren't times when you're kind of like, this isn't what I would do if I was him, then you're not paying attention to God. And in those moments where the question mark comes and you go, I just don't get this. You know where to get the answers? Come back to God again, right? He doesn't just speak to Abraham out of friendship. Jesus says that he himself has revealed to us the will of the Father. We have the scriptures. We have his Holy Spirit within us. We have his body, the church, in which to consult and to find answers to questions. God's not scared of our questions. So in verse 22 then, Abraham steps up and he speaks what's on his mind. And what's on his mind is that he's troubled. He says this in verse 22. It says, the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Right? Okay, so I love this. He goes, God, I'm confused. You're going to wipe out these cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and the sister cities. You're going to wipe them out. But, but, but there might be good people in there. There might be righteous people in there. And I got to be honest with you. Like you said, you're just, I think you're just, this doesn't feel like justice to me. It doesn't feel like justice that you would wipe out all these people. Like what if there are 50 righteous people there? You're not just going to let good people die with bad people. Let's back away. Right. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever thought how come bad things happen to good people? How come good things happen to bad people? Like, God, are you not paying attention to this, right? Like, we want to see the bad guys punished and the good guys get the prize and the trophy at the end. How come it feels like this thing's jumbled up? Like, I thought you were just. And so to me, it seems like you can't do this. You can't wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because there might be 50 good people in there. It's a good question. And it's a good thing he's wrestling with, right? It's probably worth us noting that even for us in the room, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, if you've been around the church or if you've been in American culture, Sodom and Gomorrah has a reputation. And for many people, that reputation is very narrow. When they think about the punishment that's applied to Sodom and Gomorrah, most people uh, say, oh, well, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah were punished because of one very particular sin, right? Most people think of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's become synonymous uh, w- with same-sex immorality, right? And that, that's sort of the big deal that people make out of this. But we need to be really careful to understand that while that, is, uh, while that is present in this text, there are lots of other forms of immorality and lots of other forms uh, of, uh, of wickedness and evil. In fact, I'll just kind of give you a quick sampling. Jude, chap, uh, chapter one, there's only one chapter in Jude, but verse 7 of Jude says this about Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude says, yeah, there is sexual immorality. There's a desire for, uh, some translations say, strange flesh there. They pursued unnatural desire. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 say, If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So there's maybe something sensual there, it says, but it also just talks broadly about lawlessness. If we go to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, speaking about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that's the other cities around, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. 
They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. I just want to be really clear that even when we, in 2021, sit in judgment on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't narrow it and say, well, there was one thing they did wrong. There was one thing that made God particularly mad. That isn't what the biblical story says. The biblical story says... There's immorality, there's wickedness, there's a a, a failure to care for the poor and needy, there's gluttony, there's pride. Guess what? Those very same things exist in this church and those very same things exist in our city. And they exist in our world. It's no different today. So before you go, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah is the worst, hold on. It's just like where we live. It's just like every every place where there are human beings. It's brokenness, right? God comes to Abraham and he he says, I'm going to punish these cities because of the outcry. And Abraham says, that doesn't seem right to wipe away the good with the bad. And so this dialogue begins. Genesis 18, he says this to God and God says this. Look at verse 26. The Lord says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham's argument is this. If there are 50 righteous people there, maybe we press pause on the utter destruction because that 50 righteous people, that, that might be like a, like a nucleus, like a core that could create all kinds of change in the city. That might be like this redemptive group that would transform the rest of the town. God, you don't want to kill those 50 righteous people. They might make a difference. And God says to him, no, no, if, if there are 50 righteous people in that town, I'll, I'll spare the rest of the city for those 50. And then Abraham's courage comes up a little bit, right? Now notice here he's in this text and we already read it, but there's also a humility that comes again and again. But he goes, well, you know, if, if, if I'm 50, I agree with you. 50 seems like they're worth saving. You know, what, what if five of those are just having a bad day? If five of the 50 are just happen to be off on that particular Tuesday, I mean, 45 is still pretty good, right? Abraham answered, in verse 27 and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. By the way, kids who are in the room, if you ever want to get your parents to let you stay up a little bit later, or you ever want to get your parents to let you eat a little more candy, or you ever want your parents to let you, you know, have another scoop of ice cream. The key is to take the posture Abraham's taking where you humble yourself and you look at your parents and you do what, what Abraham does here. You say, I am but dust, right? Thank you. Thanks for that. I worked really hard on that joke. Butt dust. There's a butt dust joke here. Thank you for your laughter. I actually got a, I actually got a groan in the first service with that joke. And that didn't make me sad at all. It made me feel like I'd really done something remarkable. He says, I'm nothing. I'm nobody, right? I'm butt dust and ashes. He says, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city? And you know the way this goes. They work it down. He goes, what if there's 30? And God goes, I'll spare the city for 30. He goes, well, you know, 30 is not that different than 20. How about 20? 10. They get down to 10. God says, if there are 10 righteous, I will spare the city on their behalf. What's God doing? Well, there's a couple things he's doing. First, he's demonstrating to Abraham that what might look unjust to him is actually the meeting of justice and righteousness. It's actually the place where God's justice and his mercy come together. And we, we see this no better than we do in the person of Christ. There is no better place that we see the meeting of God's justice and his mercy than in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. You see, part of the argument that Abraham's making here is, well, if you wipe out the whole city, that doesn't seem very merciful, and you're supposed to be merciful. But if you let the whole city go, well, that doesn't seem very just, because we know the outcry against them is great. And God is saying, I I know that there is a place and there is a way for both justice and mercy to be met out upon people. I'm the master of that. And it's no more beautifully uh, represented than when Jesus comes to the earth. When Jesus comes to the earth, he takes the sin of the world upon himself. 
He dies in our place and sheds his blood in order to pay the penalty for our sin. He rises from the dead and extends by his grace that self-same resurrection life to any who will believe by his grace and through faith, right? Well, what is that? That's both the justice of God being met in the death and sacrifice of Christ and the mercy of God being put on display through the gracious offering of resurrection life. God says, there are going to be times where you're going to look at me, Abraham. There are going to be times where you're going to look at me, Fullerton Free Church, and you're going to go, this doesn't seem like God is being merciful or this doesn't seem like God is being just. And he says, I, I'm wanting you to see again that I, I, I am them both and I will bring them together in a way that makes perfect sense because I know more than you do. He's also walking this down with Abraham in some ways to illustrate the point that there are not 10 righteous people in these cities. See, Abraham's perception is that there are, uh, there's a core. There's got to be 50 there, right? 40, there, maybe 30, 20. And God's going, man, if there were, it would make a difference. There aren't. There aren't. But the, the conversation is beautiful because what do we see? By the way, uh, growing up, I always sort of thought that Abraham was appealing for his nephew, right? That this whole intercession, if you want to call it an intercession, right? This, this conversation with God, when we say intercession, we're talking about prayer. When we say prayer, we're just talking about talking with God. Many of us today probably don't have this kind of a conversation with God, this back and forth dialogue. But at the same time, that's what prayer is. And what we see here is not just Abraham interceding or praying for his nephew. He's not just going, hey, don't wipe out the city until I get my relatives out. That's not what's happening in the text. What we see Abraham actually asking for is the preservation of the whole town. So I want you to think about the mercy that's already on display in the heart of Abraham. Abraham knows how wicked these cities are. Abraham knows about the outcry that's come before God. And despite the wickedness, Abraham in his humanity is looking at God and saying, give him a chance, give him some time, find a way to spare them as best you can. What's he doing? He's demonstrating the mercy of God. Kids, uh, you know, I don't know what it's like at Halloween now, but when I was a kid, we found out really quick which houses were going to be giving out the full-size candy bars. You know what I'm talking about? And when you figure out which houses are going to be giving out the full-size candy bars, you know the first thing you do? You tell your buddies. You get your buddies together and you go, hey, you've got to make sure you go over to, you know, Chestnut Street. You've got to make sure you go to first because that red house on the corner, they give out full-size candy bars. Well, what's happening there? That is someone who's received a gift wanting to secure that gift for others, right? Someone who's received something miraculous wanting to secure that for other people. Why is the favor of God resting on Abraham? Is it because he's perfect? Is it because he's holy? Is it because he has this great history behind him? No, he's as much of a lost, broken guy as anybody else. He's already proven that a couple of times. He'll prove it again. Why is the favor of God resting on Abraham? Because of the mercy of God. And so as a man who has received the mercy of God, Abraham is trying to procure the mercy of God for others. We miss this a lot. I think Christians in today's day and age make the mistake many times of being happy to receive the mercy of God and then anxious to see God's judgment dispensed on others. Ha, 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 right? Why don't we want the same mercy we've received to be given to other people? I, I love the compassion and the mercy that's put on display here. Now, Abraham doesn't know all the details. God does. And at, at the end of this, by the way, God sort of finishes the conversation. If you go to Genesis 18 and you look at the, the last part, Basically, the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So Abraham wasn't the one who decided when the convo was over. God decided. God initiates the convo and God ends the convo. But what we see here is God trying to walk Abraham down this path. He says, I'm going to have this conversation with him because I want him to walk like me in justice and in mercy. 
And so I have to demonstrate to him what that looks like. There is an opportunity for us to intercede. And you don't have to use that fancy word, but to be going before God on behalf of the people around you. Not just the people who look like bad guys to you, by the way, because it's possible that the people that look like bad guys to you aren't bad. How do I know that? Well, it's really interesting what happens here in uh, Genesis 18. I I will tell you that as we get further into the study next week, we're going to see Lot prove himself to be a fairly morally corrupt dude, right? Like a kind of a train wreck of a human being. And yet he's saved. He's pulled out of that city, even though he deserves wrath. He deserves punishment. He's just as corrupt. In fact, the passage we already read in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 6 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. When I read Second Peter chapter 2, I'm like, quit calling him righteous. It's like a mess of a guy. Please stop saying he had a righteous soul and he was really conflicted by the things going on. Because like I read about Lot in Genesis 18, 19, and 20 and I go, that's not a good dude. That's a bad guy. That's a guy who, who maybe deserves some punishment, right? But the Holy Scripture, inspired by God, tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, that if we're tempted to look at Lot in Genesis 18 and 19 and go, that's an unrighteous dude, our judgment is messed up. Because God knows something about Lot that we didn't know. God knows something about Lot that was not revealed to us in the earlier story. God knows that he had put his faith in God, which is what righteousness equates to. That Lot is spared not because of the praise or the prayer of Abraham, but Lot is spared because at some point, even in the midst of all of his brokenness, he was trusting in God. Well, before you get too judgy about that, guess what? That's us again too. All of us are being spared in the midst of our unrighteousness by the grace of Jesus. So what I'm suggesting is that we look at we look at Abraham's model of compassion and care for those who are hurting and those who are lost. God has revealed to us the end of the story. The reality is that there are many in our world today who are broken in sin, just like us. And if they have not put their faith in Christ, they will be separated from God for eternity. We know that, and it is our, it is our privilege to go before God on behalf of those And say, God, will you rescue them? Will you save them? Will you reveal yourself to them? Will you spare them? Will you give them another week or another two weeks? Will you preserve their life? Will you heal them so that they have another day, another month, another hundred years in which to be able to hear the truth of the gospel and receive it? Will you please give mercy to others because I myself have received mercy? It's revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. We see it in Genesis 18 in the mouth of Abraham as God invites him to understand That God alone, God alone is both just and merciful and gets it right every time. And the rest of us are dependent upon him. The last thing I want you to see is this, that when we approach the throne of God through intercession or prayer, when we go on behalf of other people, that is a fulfillment of what Jesus said is most important. When they ask Jesus what's most important, he says, love God and love others. Love God and love others. When we approach God in prayer, with this kind of question, with this kind of desire, what is that but, but an indication of our desire to know him more? So there is an articulation of affection for God in this kind of intercession. Not only is it loving God because it desires to know more about his ways so that we can walk in his ways, but it's also loving of others because it's us getting on our knees for the sake of our neighbors and our friends and our family and other people that we know who maybe don't yet know Jesus. So in this kind of prayer for other people, 
we both have the opportunity to love God more and to love others well. Not that I needed to give you one more reason to take this on. I I think it's reason enough to walk in the ways of God and to be like him in justice and mercy. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart to intercede, a heart to come before you, to draw near to you humbly and say, there are things about you that I don't understand. Will you reveal yourself to me? There are things that you do that I don't, I don't get. Will you help me understand? And to, to be able to go before you, God, and have you inform us and educate us, and allow us to explore the depths of who you are, to, to come to new understandings, to new realizations, to grow in our love for you and our love for others, and in so doing, to be your ambassadors, to reveal you in the world in which we live. We thank you that your judgments are inscrutable and that your ways are beyond ours, that you have the ability to see to the core of people in a way that we can't. We pray, God, that you would help us to trust you and to be like you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.